Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions for biblical world and life view. Your co-hosts are Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor, and Pastor Charles Roberts. Thanks for joining us once again for this episode of the Out of the Question podcast. Back in 1993, R.J. Rush Jr. wrote a position paper, and what he said in it was, Our world today is warped because of its disbelief in original sin and total depravity. Now, that may seem odd because we have people who claim they are saved, and often it's a question that one person will ask to another, when were you saved? But the question that Charles and I are going to explore today is, exactly what are we saved from? You know, if you're drowning and someone jumps in and pulls you out, you know you were saved from drowning. So, Charles, what are we saved from? It's interesting that you put the question that way. I say that because many years ago when I was in high school, I had a very good friend who also happened to be a high school teacher at my high school, and he was basically an agnostic. And being in a southern public school back in those days, there were a lot of fairly devout evangelical, if not fundamentalist Christians and he, when it was known that he was not a believer, he, he would get a lot of well-intended young people who would put that question to him. Brother, are you saved? And you would have people on street corners in, in my hometown on the weekends who would be out handing out flyers and Bible tracts. And they, although, and that would be his favorite comeback. What, saved from what? Ha ha ha. So of course, that is a legitimate question. And today uh, people would ask that. With all sincerity, because they have no concept that they need to be delivered or saved from anything, except perhaps from too much pizza they ate the night before. Uh, but in the deep recesses of their minds, they realize that something is not quite right. Uh, something is wrong with the world, if not with themselves. And I would like to um, begin to answer that question in this way, that in the shorter catechism of our Reformed Church, our Presbyterian Church at least, it poses the question into what estate did the fall of man bring mankind, and the fall brought mankind into an estate of sin and misery. And that is, in fact, what we need to be saved from, sin and misery. Now, the problem is, the typical evangelical response is something like, uh, well, I'm a sinner because I commit sins. When in reality, the biblical perspective is, you sin because you're a sinner. Now, that sound may sound like a Zen Cohen you know, type of thing, but if you think very carefully about the two differences, one person is saying, well, I do, uh, I'm, a, I'm a bad person because I do bad things. Just change the wording around. Where scripture teaches us that we do bad things because we are at heart bad people. So what you're saying is that oftentimes we have a tendency to soft pedal what's wrong with us. Whereas if you look in the scripture, first John three, four, it clearly states that sin is the transgression of the law. So if the law is not foremost in your thinking and in your behavior, then I think it's pretty easy to say sin is what 
is morally unacceptable in a culture. Would you agree with that? Yes, absolutely. And I'm reminded in Pilgrim's Progress, um, that great work by John Bunyan, he goes along the way and he bumps into a bunch of different kinds of people. And there's Mr. Civility, and I believe there's Mr. Morality. And the interesting part about these two characters is that it becomes obvious these are people whose nature has not been changed. They just do different things than what's deemed unacceptable in the general culture. So one of the consequences Rush Dooney brings out in this position paper is says one consequence of the disbelief in original sin and total depravity is racism. Now, racism is a big word, top, hot topic today. How on earth is racism a result of disbelief in original sin? Well, frankly, I'm not sure you know, how to answer that question other than to say that uh, a whole host of things can be classified as sinful activities depending on the law system in which the violation or the infraction has occurred. Now, and it also depends on how we define things. And, and I'm not trying to weasel out of a question, but the fact is, for example, in most cultures and most law systems, it's pretty clear what murder is. But in, in a case such as something like this, racism can mean different things in different places. I frankly don't see in scripture where something like that is spoken against. However, we are enjoined in scripture to treat others fairly and according to a godly standard, and there's no delineation except if they're X, Y, or Z. So I think that insofar as there is such a thing as, quote, racism, it really is subsumed under a larger category in Holy Scripture that has to do with basic interpersonal relations, regardless of a person's cultural or ethnic background. Well, in the essay, Rush Dooney says that racism holds that certain peoples have a particularly evil bent. So the racist, not someone who just recognizes, oh, that person has a different hair color than this person or different skin color, but actually holds that a group of people based on physical uh, characteristics, based on ethnic origin, they're the bad ones. And it doesn't take into account all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God which means that the standards by which we judge who's bad and who's good, if we're taking that standard apart from the law of God, then what we're doing is we're being racist whether or not we would give ourselves that kind of classification. Well, and I think this goes to the heart of the issue of law, and it's being inescapable. I mean, no matter where you live, whether you're in an advanced society, a technocratic society, or a primitive society, a family-based society where it's the tribe and the chief, or you know, just across the board, there are law systems. There are orders of law that people are enjoined or required to obey. And so there has to be a source as to what it is that defines what is legal, what is right or wrong, what is lawful in any kind of society, however advanced or unadvanced. And so... Uh, it, Today, the, the term racism, uh, there are many other terms that are floating around today, are sort of the big ticket sins. And when we look at the source of how those things are defined, almost always 
in the current context, they're defined by something other than God's law word. And I, I understand exactly what Dr. Rastuni is writing about there. But right. yeah, so, uh, you know, if we follow the, the law as summarized in the Ten Commandments and then elaborated in the case laws of Scripture, we can see that there are powerful and direct injunctions by God Almighty about how we are to interact both within our own tribal or familial or national structure, and also with the sojourner or the alien who is within your midst, as the saying goes. Well, I don't think scripture ever tells us to turn off our senses. If you hear discordant sounds, you're not supposed to say, oh, they're so melodious. If you find them to be discordant, you say discordant. But the idea that some people are better than other people inherently goes against the fact that we're all image bearers of God and to one degree or another are covenantally faithful or covenantally disobedient. But this idea that some people are just inherently worse than others, we see it being taken to extreme positions. But he also makes the observation that he says, even among faithful church members of the Bible and its doctrines, in minimal, racism is not uncommon. He says, the evil in our world is attributed to a particular people or race. It's blacks or whites, Jews or Gentiles, and so on and on. And so then what you have is a moral evil, a moral fact turned into a genetic fact. And as a result of that, all you have to do is look at world history and look at the conflicts. We often have conflicts that get framed in terms of this group against another and choose your side. And we're seeing it today with conflict in the Middle East, conflict between Russia and Ukraine. How many people take their political views and base them on scripture rather than preference or emotion? Well, sadly, not nearly enough. Uh, that's part of the problem that we have with the decline of b- the biblical basis of what was used to be called American society. However, you know, the, the point that we want to make is, at least that I want to make, is that as biblical Christians who take God's law word seriously, that doesn't mean that we are morally perfected. It simply means that we aspire by God's grace and by the power of the Spirit to live according to the standard that he, as our king and lawgiver, has given us. I'm thinking of something right now that I think is a good analogy, and I'm thinking of it because I saw just recently that this movie was playing on TV. It's a movie uh, done by Mel Gibson called Apocalypto. And in this film, it's a remarkable film. We may have talked about it before, but it has to do with a primitive Mayan or Incan society. It, it leads up to how this one little tribe of very peace-loving, friendly, you know, Indians are living their lives. And then they get, they get captured by another tribe. And the whole purpose of their being captured is to be part of human sacrifice and to be enslaved. And it's a pretty grisly movie. But what's remarkable is that, uh, and spoiler alert, spoiler alert, okay, so when you get to the very end of the film, the main character, who a lot of sympathy has been built up for, he's being chased down by a group of really awfully savage Mayans or Incans or whatever they are, and they want to use him for a, a human sacrifice. And as they're chasing this guy through the jungle in this fierce, fierce chase, they come to an opening on a beach, and they all come to a screeching halt because there off the shore are three Spanish galley ships. 
and they just stand there looking because they've never seen anything like this before. So the point of the of the film is that you've got this savage group of people who lived like savages with these horrendous things that they do, and here is the arrival of Christianity and civilization. Now, I don't think anyone who has a meaningful standard of right and wrong and good or bad would think that living in a society where people are regularly rounded up and having their hearts cut out while they're still alive and held aloft to sacrifice to some pagan god is something that's good for a society. On the other hand, the Christianization, quote-unquote, of a society like that is a good thing, but that doesn't mean that everybody on those Spanish galley ships were wonderfully nice fellows, see? And I think that's the point we have to remember, is that as people who follow the teachings of Scripture, as to what it teaches concerning original sin and how we sin daily, it doesn't mean we're perfect but it means that we aspire to follow the standard that God has given us because he says, this is how you are to live. I have taken care of your culpability for sin through Christ Jesus, through his work on your behalf, if you are a part of his family, but you have to go on living in this world until I remove you from it by passing out of this life through death. And in the meantime, therefore, you will live by this standard. So let's go back to the idea of what are we saved from? That analogy you gave about the the film. Obviously, these people stop in their tracks when they see something they've not encountered before. And it's enough to make them at least, I don't know how the movie ends, I've never seen it, cease from whatever they were doing to face up to this this new novel and apparently powerful thing. But if you don't understand what the fall was, is, and what the transgression was, because again, the Bible says sin is a transgression of the law. There was a law in place in Eden, and that law was violated. And it didn't have to do with some people like some fruit over other fruit. So that mango really looked good. I Why can't I eat a mango? That's not what the sin was. The sin was deciding that God's law didn't count and that they could determine for themselves what law is. So, Charles, you're a pastor. How many people that you encounter when they're talking about their conversion, when they're talking about what it means to be a Christian— say to you, there came a point in time where I realized I had to set aside my own desire, my own tendency, my own will to be as God and determine right and wrong for myself, and I submitted to Jesus Christ. Do you hear people talk in those terms? Um, not nearly enough. <laughs> I, I think a lot of people who you know come to a screeching halt in their lives because of the things that they're doing, you know, they think that, um, to go back to what I said at the beginning, you know, my life's a mess because I've done bad things. And if by God's grace, they realize that the opposite is just the, the case, they're doing these bad things because their life is already a mess to start out with. That, as someone used to say, you're born with a bad record and a bad heart. So there, there are some who come to realize that, you know, I've, I've done all these self-help programs. I've followed this group and that group. I've meditated. I've done this. I, you know, I, I, I've been to Sedona and been in the hut, the hut with the, you know, the, the steam and all that kind of thing. Uh, and nothing seems to have worked. I'm, I'm just as miserable as I always was. And so the Lord can use that. But there are lots of people in lots of churches who think 
that the problem is I was just doing all this bad stuff and I realized that God wasn't happy with me, so I'm doing better now. Rather than coming to the really shattering realization that, again, as the Catechism teaches us, that all humanity sinned in Adam and fell with him in his first transgression. And this gets to the very heart and the root of original sin. A lot of people don't understand. Okay, they think original, and of course, they they think back to the garden and Adam and Eve and the events that you just alluded to that really constitute what it was. But what's missing from, unfortunately, a lot of church theology and history is the covenantal structure that we clearly see taught in Scripture that God indicates this is how I am interacting with humanity. You know, I am a covenant-making and keeping God, and I come to you as the great king, and I tell you, this you shall do and be blessed. If you don't do this, you shall be cursed. Therefore, follow this way. And that's essentially what he said to Adam and Eve in the garden. What unfolds for us through the broad sweep of biblical history and, and biblical religion is that in Adam, all humanity that descend from him by, as the catechism uses the term, ordinary generation, we are stained with the corruption of that sin. That's why, it, well, if, if, any, if any of our listeners have raised children, <laughs> you know, uh, I think you can see that. How is it that a human being, relatively fresh out of the womb, is doing disagreeable things and obviously engaging in activity that is selfish on some level? Where did they get that from? No one taught that to them. So it's an inherent problem, and the only solution to humanity is what Christ has done for us by God's grace. Indeed. You know, I, for years, typeset a lot of Dr. Rush Dooney's books, and in the process— Sometimes it took me longer than it should have because I was reading it. And then I would have to create a scripture index or a subject index. Well, the verse that he cites more than any other verse is not John 3.16. It's Genesis 3.5. The desire to be as God and determining right and wrong for themselves. Now, in a time of cheap grace, in a time of cheap conversion, what's missing, and if I, I don't understand how, I, maybe I understand how the rank and file missed this, but I don't understand how those who have supposedly studied the scriptures, gone to seminary, and still promote it, that what happened in the garden was a change of nature. From being innocent before God, they became depraved. And as a result of that, now instead of having the ability to choose right and wrong, which they had, they ended up with a nature, and that's what you said gets transmitted to everybody since then, with a those with a propensity to do what they want to do, not what God wants them to do. It's not so much the propensity to do bad things, because those the, the designation bad or good has to, as you said, have a standard. But this propensity is, I'll do it my way. I want to do it my way. So their nature changed, although the image of God in them did not. And so instead of the urge to dominion, fallen man seeks to dominate. And this is where we get statism in as much as it posits an alternate form of salvation. In other words, we have to tell you what to do because you're incapable of doing it yourself and you'll be happier if you do it 
our way. Well, that's a counterfeit. That's the lie that Satan told because that same thing is true. I am God. Your life will be better to the degree you obey me. So what statism and tyrants over the millennia have done is appropriate God's character and sinlessness, right? Because he's perfect and decided we're going to tell others how they shall live. And so I think we miss the fact that there's this change of nature. And that's why, as you pointed out, you don't have to teach children how to throw tantrums. Somehow they know. I think what you just pointed out is one of the many marvelous contributions that Dr. Rastuni made to the understanding of biblical religion and of human society. Not surprisingly, that observation about how the state becomes the central focus of salvation in humanistic society for humanistic man is ignored and resented by those who really understand the implication of it. and They don't like it. But when you do come to really appreciate the nature of what happened in the Garden of Eden and the fall of humanity and how, again, how all humanity sinned in Adam and fell with him in that first transgression, then you realize that when you go further, the declaration by God that there shall be two lines of covenantal descent that come from Adam and Eve, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, you have these dual paths, one that will be humanistic and seeking salvation by means of man and by means of the highest expression of human society and human aspiration, which is the state. As the German philosopher Hegel called it, God walking on the earth. And, you know, I've struggled to try to communicate to this people over the years of my own pastoral ministry, because when you start talking about that, about how the state sees itself as God, people think, well, you mean uh, the president or the governor thinks he can stand up in, uh, you know, his his bully pulpit or his podium and he can cast lightning bolts out of his fingers and fly through the air? Is that what you're saying? No, of course not. Those aren't the attributes of deity according to scripture. The attributes of God and the attributes of divine sovereignty are doing things like declaring what is lawful, doing things like declaring what life is and when death shall be, declaring who man is. And these are all the things that the state allocates to itself, absent a theocratic biblical foundation. We've said this before. It bears repeating almost every time we have a discussion. Theocracy is unavoidable. And Christians who pat themselves on the back thinking they're somehow being particularly pious by eschewing any concept of theocracy. Oh, that's what the Muslims do. You're living in a fool's paradise. And you have a theocratic inclination. You need to find out, are you obeying the law of God and what he says the state should be or that of what the pagan state declares itself to be? And I just want to say before I forget, Dr. Rushdoony's book, The Foundations of Social Order, is one of the best books that you can read on this topic. You know, we could say just read all of his books, but you know, Law and Liberty is another where he gets into all of these topics and these subjects. And I think in terms of the first book that I mentioned, one of the most fascinating things has to do with the issue of images and icons. And it, it goes directly to this matter that we're talking about. Because people don't understand that what led to at least one aspect of the controversy of icons and images in the early church 
was the fact that the emperors were portrayed in artwork and statues. And the idea was that if God's divine son can be portrayed, and he is divine, well, the emperor is therefore too. And so when this began to be debated and discussed, the, uh, there was a recognition that, well, well, wait a minute. If the emperor has any kind of, quote, divinity, it's with a very small d compared to God's holy, only begotten son. Right. And it goes back to Satan is a deceiver and people who are deceived. You know, it's very hard to deceive someone if you're not pumping them up in the process. So an effective deception is going to make someone feel good about himself or herself, but missing the greater context. And I think when when people bang their heads against the wall and say, I don't get it, how do we get to a point in our culture where men can say they're women and women can say they're men? Well, I would submit, Charles, that it has its roots in theologically contrary doctrines to scripture. We cannot change our nature. Jesus had to come and pay a price in order that humanity could be born again. I don't think anybody who's listening would say they played a part in their conception. Obviously, they did not. They didn't even pay a part other than participating in growing and developing and being born. Yeah, maybe it got crowded in there. And so the baby starts moving around and that starts labor and delivery. But nobody can take credit for their conception. And at the same time, no one can take credit for their rebirth. And yet the church teaches and promotes that if you accept Jesus into your heart, you have changed your nature. Well, it goes back to what did they think their nature is? Did they look at themselves as dead people walking? Remember, all who aren't in Christ are dead. And he brings them to life. So this whole cheapening of, yes, I'm reborn. I'm saved because I said I was saved. Isn't that sort of like what Adam and Eve did in the garden? They just declared themselves something they were not. Yes, exactly. And I think maybe the thing that may be helpful for some of our listeners, at least, is to balance or compare the biblical view about the concept of original sin with some of the others that have been around for a while. I mean, for example, the uh, the Augustinian view uh, used to be, uh, maybe it still is, I don't know, the, the view of the Roman Catholic Church that the sin of Adam and Eve is transmitted by human generation, and that's inherited guilt from that standpoint. And, I mean, there's some aspect of that. It's similar to the federal headship view, which is what I have said is, is the biblical view, that Adam was the federal head or the representative of the entire human race that would descend him from him, and that when he sinned, it was if all of us who descend from him have sinned in him. And so his guilt and sinful nature are imputed, and that means legally attributed. This is not an, you know, some, some sort of, you know, weird thing that's in the genes. This is a legal attribution. His, his, his sin, his guilt is imputed to us and to all of his descendants. That's one reason the virgin birth was necessary and why that's such a crucial doctrine to a true understanding of the atonement. Now, another view that probably needs to be mentioned 
well, a couple of others, the, the view of the Eastern Orthodox Church is there's an, a recognition of the existence of original sin, but interestingly, they emphasize that its effects are a separation from God and a mortality in, uh, inherited from Adam. In other words, we die because of Adam, but we did not inherit his guilt, according to that view. And then there are various evangelical corruptions of the traditional reform view, the Pelagian view, which is in many ways a complete rejection, if not just a partial rejection of original sin. And this view is that people are just born neutral, and they have the ability when they're born to choose good and evil. And so individuals are only accountable for their own personal sins, not for the sin of Adam. I, uh, I'm i a big fan of the Andy Griffith show, and there's an episode where uh, Barney is talking, the, the sheriff, the deputy sheriff is talking to some guys that have been arrested there in the jail cell. And he's read some book on, you know, how environment influences behavior. And so he goes and gets these little kits, how you can make things. And he tells one of them, he says, Chester, you there, if your twig had been bent in a different direction, you might have turned out to be a dentist instead of a criminal. And that's, that's the kind of mindset that we have this moral, morally neutral slate and we begin to write on it either good or bad actions, and that's what we have to deal with. It all comes down to us, and we can change it ourselves one way or the other. All right. So I was raised Roman Catholic, and part of that teaching is when you baptize a child, you remove original sin. That's what we're taught. And I do believe this probably has something to do why Protestants don't like to baptize children, because it's recognized that the act of baptism isn't a hocus pocus. I've done the, the, the necessary ritual and now my child is free from original sin. Any parent who really thinks that they're probably going to be very disappointed when the child lies, cheats, steals, whatever. The point being is the baptism is a recognition that we are sinners and we must die to ourselves in order to be raised with Christ. And you mentioned earlier that people think they're sinners because they sin, as opposed to they sin because they're sinners. And I think few people recognize the importance of the death of Jesus and then the resurrection of Jesus, because two things took place in those two events. Number one, Jesus paid the price for our sins. Debt was paid. The fact that he rose from the dead is an assertion that those in Christ have this new nature. In other words, it's not that they don't commit sins, but first and foremost, their sin is not an of an antinomian bent. It's the remnants or the reality of still living in a fallen world and not being completely sanctified. But the sinner saved by grace knows that if he confesses his sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive him his sins and cleanse him from all unrighteousness, and then he begins again. So his nature has changed. And you'd be hard-pressed to find someone who could tell you how the difference between I walked into church at 9 o'clock, I left at 11, I said yes to Jesus, and I said this prayer, not only is my nature changed, but somehow or other, right then and there, my name was written in the book of life. I don't think people think in terms of that, in terms of day-to-day things. I just decide I'm a member of this country club. 
Oh, now I can walk in and get all the benefits. Now they're going to check your membership, right? And there's a price to be paid. So the price paid isn't something we pay. Christ paid it. But if we cheapen it to mean we can decide now my debt has been paid as opposed to the recognition that I am depraved and all I'll do is continue to do depraved things apart from the transformation by the Holy Spirit. You know, uh, one of the things that some people are surprised by, and whenever I talk about these things, whether it be one-on-one or in a sermon, is that when you read passages like, say, John chapter 5, where Jesus is interacting with the Pharisees and declaring his sonship and his uh, his kingship and how he imparts life to those who believe, but he also executes God's judgment. And it's the fact that we all, we, we have, and this gets into some things like the first and second resurrection, the first resurrection being the resurrection to new life being regenerated, in other words, But the second resurrection is a bodily one where we will stand before God, every one of us, elect, non-elect, believer, unbeliever. And I I say to people, you know, you will be judged on works. And they say, well, wait a minute. I thought you were reformed. I thought you were a Protestant. You're judged on works? Oh, yes. You're either going to be judged on your works or the works of Christ Jesus that are imputed to you. You can't get away from that. And that's the whole point of this understanding, is that Christ fulfilled the thing that we are not capable of doing, and in him we have new life. We have been restored. And the thing about the baptism issue, I, I was thinking of something I uh, I heard many years ago when I was in seminary, and I've done more than a few baptisms in my almost 30 years, over 30 years of ministry. Sometimes babies cry, sometimes they sort of sleep right through it. And one of my, uh, one of the professors on staff at Westminster Seminary when I was there was the late Dr. Philip Edgecombe Hughes, who was uh, an evangelical Anglican. And he used to say that if you're baptizing a baby, if it doesn't cry, you're not sure you've driven the devil out of him. So <laughs> I've always thought that was kind of, I mean, I, he, does, he didn't believe in that kind of, you know, I see. magical I see. view of baptism. But the point is, when we baptize our children as covenant children, the presumption is that by God's grace, that baptism uh, is a recognition of what he will do among our elect children. So it is a powerfully important symbol. And it gets back to the very heart of what it means uh, as far as sin and being sinful. I had one of my professors explain, I never heard it explained this way, concerning baptism and sin. He said, you know, in in some circles, baptism is a sign of a decision that you made. But he said the biblical view is baptism is a sign of a decision God made. And I've I've always thought that was a very powerful thing to remember. And again, we're talking now about an important doctrine of Scripture of election. In other words, no one comes to the Father unless they're drawn to the Father. Nobody willingly says, you know what, I want to give up my autonomy because I'm a depraved sinner and there's got to be a better way. No, usually it's an event or circumstances that cause you to come to the end of yourself and then you reach out for help. In other words, the drowning person who needs to be saved. Now, I just want to make something clear. If there are those listening or those listening know of others who went through the process of they were in a church and there was an altar call and they went forward 
that, okay, that means that they're not really believers because no, that's not what I'm saying. First of all, I don't determine who's in and who's out. I don't give the tickets to heaven, as they say. But one of the things that will be true, even if somebody's theology or doctrine is a little wonky, they'll live by the faith. And so you will see these people doing things that if you ask them why you do it, it might transcend or supersede their own theological understanding. So what I'm saying isn't the method by which you come to receive God's forgiveness and grace, but the reality that you've got to put your hands up and say, I surrender. And I believe that the period from our conversion to our glorification when God takes us to heaven is we're working out our salvation with fear and trembling. So it makes no sense to try to work out your salvation with fear and trembling and not being a constant student of the word, not looking at how the law is being applied in your life and dismissing the idea that somehow you were good enough to come to this intellectual ascent. No, none of us are. Paul the Apostle, as someone once said, got knocked, got knocked off his high horse. He was so sure he was on the right track, and God dispelled him of that. But God dispelled him of that, not so that Paul could feel better about himself. But Jesus says to him, you're going to see how much you suffer for the gospel. So maybe people don't like to confront these realities because it means work, responsibility, and sometimes hatred of other people coming your way. Yes, and I think that the looming issue, that's a, if it's not in the background, it's, it's certainly up front and center that also, and that's C-E-N-T-E-R, center, um, it, it's also something that troubles humanistic uh, people, a humanistic man, people who are leaning in, in that direction. And that is the absolute, uncompromised, unequivocal authority of God's law word. You have to start somewhere in order to get anywhere. You have to have a place that you implicitly understand to be absolutely infallible and inerrant and without error as your perfect rule of faith and practice. The state has one answer or one suggestion or one requirement for that. Pagan religion has another. According to biblical religion, according to the Christian faith, is the law word of God in the Old and New Testaments, the infallible inerrant word that is the foundation of all truth. Now, what we've been talking about is how that foundation and that divine truth speaks to us on the subject of sin, the miseries of this life, what God has done to remedy that situation as declared in that word. But I, I would invite our listeners, whether it ha has to do with what their own thoughts are about what it means to be a sinner, uh, how they themselves came to faith in Christ, or others may who claim to be Christian, how they did. Let's ask ourselves, what is the foundation of what we understand to be those things? And on a more broad scale, if there's any area of life to, to which you are pointing as an absolute authority that is contradictory to the Word of God, or you're drawing that authority from somewhere outside the Word of God and don't even bother to consider whether or not it conforms to the Word of God, then we have a very serious problem, and it's at that point where things are going to go off kilter, and it leads inevitably to some kind of misery in life and a humanistic compromise. And 
I'm not going to get into detail, but somebody might, you know, stutter and sputter and say, well, what about this issue? You mean we got to go with the Bible and what that says on that issue and this issue? Well, yes, because the Bible claims to speak with authority about everything about which it speaks, and it speaks about everything. Or to paraphrase, man does not live by bread alone, but by every capitalized, every underline, every italicized, every, <laughs> you know, every means every word of God, everything that comes from the mouth of God. And I don't think we can say we are surrendered to God and his law word unless when we read something in scripture and it goes against our inclination. I'll give you a really good example. My husband and I have a practice before he goes to work is that we will read scripture together and sometimes we'll go through a book together and we're currently going through Dr. Rush Dooney's commentary on first and second Corinthians. And typically I'll read it out loud and we'll talk about it or whatever. And in the midst of the one we were reading today, I got hit right in the face <laughs> with something that I had done six or seven years ago that I was so sure that I was right. And now based on this particular section, and nobody needs the details, I knew the details. I was like, oh, wow, maybe I was outside my bounds with that. And that's the manifestation, I believe, of the Holy Spirit, because anybody who knows me knows that I'm not really eager to be pointed out where I was wrong, especially when at the time what I did, I was sure that I was right, and then getting a different perspective. So if we're saved, and then that's it, and that means that everything we do is right, and we don't need to put a mirror up to our face or a magnifying glass on our lives. What we're going to do is we're going to be stagnant, but what the process between conversion and glorification is all about sanctification and being made holy, meaning being separated from the world, being separated from our sin, being separated from what people think of us and drawing closer to God. So you can be holy to something bad, or you can be holy to something good. And I think one of the things that's most difficult, Charles, is convincing someone who's been taught the opposite that they need to look at it from a new perspective. Because what you get is, oh, you don't think I'm saved? It's not the point. The point is, are you covenantally faithful or not? Are you a covenant keeper or a covenant breaker? Because if I ask you, what are you saved from? And you don't really know, then how can you be so sure of your salvation? The challenge that we face in all times is this requirement to be stridently faithful to what we've been talking about concerning the authority of God's word. And so often, you know, we are given teachings, beliefs, ideas. That's the starting point for those teachings and beliefs and ideas are nowhere near based on the truths of God's holy word. And this has been so ingrained, especially in American evangelical culture. All it takes is for someone in a position of authority in some area to quote a Bible verse or to, you know, somehow pretend to be religious or Christian. And we just assume that that whatever they're teaching us in this area, whether it be in medicine or biology or science or whatever, that well, this must be a Christian position. This must be what the Bible teaches. 
But no, if you look at the, the starting point, now, let me just focus on that for a minute. And then I'm going to end my part of this with, with this. Is that, you know, you mean to tell me the Bible is a textbook, is a textbook for everything? I mean, the Bible is not a textbook for science, is it? Well, yes, it is. And, you know, the idea that somehow, um, well, and again, staying with that example of science, that people who are, quote, scientists are working from something other than what would be dismissed as primitive religious ideas based upon the beliefs of a nomadic people who knew nothing about all the advances that we have today and technology, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That is such a, a load of rubbish. When you look at the heart of what motivates people in these endeavors, and you really get down behind the personalities and the belief systems of these people, you you wind up with paganism, pure and simple. And and whether that's the the worldview that human beings are, you know, nothing more than the the at, at, at one with the creation, this sort of modalistic view that everything is one, which is where a lot of these people end up. Or there are people, and I'm not calling names or getting into details, it's just not enough time in this episode, uh, but people who were well-known scientists who were Satan worshippers. And that's not some wild, bizarre claim. I don't have a tinfoil hat on right now. If you don't know that, it's because you haven't taken the time to study and realize that some of the people behind some of the most dramatic events in 20th, 20th century, anyway, uh, uh, history in terms of science and technology have been people who've embraced very strange and bizarre paganistic views concerning man and religion. So you aren't going to escape the responsibility to have God's law word as the absolute starting point for everything that you say and believe and do. And God tells us, just like he did with Adam and Eve in the garden, this is the path of life. This is the path of death. So let me conclude by upsetting people. You said earlier, you know, about cultures that, you know, would have no problem cannibalizing other human beings because they had a different view of them. They were less. Folks, we got to pay attention to the fact that we're, our society is there. We've deemed the unborn of lesser importance. We've deemed those who are critically injured as less important. And we got to quickly get a, a new definition of death so that we can harvest their organs. You see, man apart from God will continue to manifest the nature of rebellion against God. And when people look around and say, I just don't understand how God could be letting this happen. Maybe we ought to look at our own lives and say, how many things have we agreed to? How many things have we decided is true because they've always been true? When in actual fact, if you don't read the scriptures, you won't know God's revelation of what's true and what's not. And it'll all be based on this culture or that. So we're not as bad as those cultures that you talked about in that movie. We don't run around trying to get people and, and sacrifice them for our needs. But do we? Could one of the pushes of abortion, because then you have all this quote-unquote raw material with which to do medical research and then come up with the cure for death or the inevitability of death and everything else. See, if you don't look at the fact that what we inherited from Adam and Eve's transgression is death and death in all areas, physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, there's no area that we're not depraved. 
And so if we somehow think, yeah, 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 that person's not a Christian, but look at all the good they do. Uh Uh-uh, not possible unless you're going to change the words of scripture to mean something other than what they clearly state. I'm wondering if you, uh, before we wrap up, would remind folks of the references to Dr. Rushuni's works that we made. I've referenced the Westminster Shorter Catechism several times, and I would encourage people to read that. You can read it online. Uh, like the first, I don't know, 20 or 30 questions and answers are all based on Scripture, and especially the first 10 or 15 deal specifically with this issue of original sin. Right. So you mentioned the foundations of social order, law and liberty. I would recommend his position papers, which are a three-volume collection called An Informed Faith, where he basically goes through various things. What I was quoting from today was one of those position papers. And it's not that I'm saying that Rush Dooney is the end all, the final say on everything, but I always encourage believers who study to come up with their own position papers based on scripture. What is your position on this or that and why? Which side are you taking in the conflict between modern day Russia and Ukraine or Israel and Hamas? Are you basing that on scripture? And can you say, I am obeying God by adhering to this position? That's why it's important that you read what those who, especially Rush Dooney, since he was speaking in the 20th century, and we can take his words and see how they apply today, is that you ask yourself the question, is this helping me be more faithful or less faithful? And if you're just reading and ingesting things that make you feel good about yourself, I would suggest that you need to find a better source of instruction. Yeah, I would just add to that. I encourage our listeners to avail themselves of those resources, especially right now, because I believe there's an end of the year sale in progress at Chalcedon. Yeah, chalcedonstore.com or chalcedon.edu. You can get to the products either way. All right. Well, thank you, Charles. I hope we've given people stuff to think about. I know I've given myself stuff to think about as we prepared for this. As always, Feel free to contact us out of the question podcast at gmail.com and we'll talk to you next time. Thank you, Andrew. Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, please visit calcedon.edu.